It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Mance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. We are a program that is put together for small business by small business owners. Landon Mance and myself, Austin Peterson, host the show. Landon from Las Vegas, myself from Scottsdale, Arizona. And today we are excited to have on the show with us Todd Cravens, president and CEO of Galaxy Gaming. And this is actually a departure for us. This is the first time that we've had a public company uh, on our show. We're typically a show that highlights small businesses that are privately held. But today we're going to highlight a Galaxy, excuse me, a company called Galaxy Gaming that is technically public, but they are a smaller company, a smaller public company. So we're excited to have Todd on the show and have him tell us a little bit about his story and the Galaxy Gaming story. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, Todd, excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about you personally first, if you don't mind. Tell us about your family, where you grew up, how you kind of came into the gaming space, and maybe a little bit of your background uh, in gaming prior to Galaxy Gaming, as well as, uh, you know, kind of where you are today. Sure. I grew up a bit in California and then a bit up in the Seattle, uh, Washington area. And I've kind of always been in the out of uh, home entertainment business, if you will. Uh, when I was uh, 13, uh, I bought an arcade game, and installed it into a convenience store. And since I couldn't uh, get a driver's license at that time, I used to run service and collections on my bicycle. And that thing kind of grew into a little bit of a larger route. And then by the time I was in college, I started opening up some arcades and things like that. So again, out of uh, of home entertainment, if you will. So I kind of grew up in that business. And um, uh, my father and I, while I was in college, we had a a sales and marketing company uh, for coin-operated amusement uh, uh, industry. And so for smaller companies that didn't really have their own sales and marketing, we would handle that for them. And so there was a a company called Incredible Technologies, and uh, they reached out to us. We were kind of their last hope. A lot of people had passed on a game that they had. And so they sent us this little game in kind of a a roll-up suitcase with a small little uh, screen that popped up, and it was a golf game. And uh, my father looked at this game. My father was ever the optimist. And he says, we are going to sell 2,000 of these games. Um, and I looked at him. I'm like, it's a golf game. No one plays golf, video golf games. And uh, the, that game turned out to be Golden Tee Golf. And Golden Tee Golf went on to be uh, the best-selling coin-operated amusement game since Miss Pac-Man. I think there were over 100,000 units of those sold. So... That was how I spent a lot of my time in college was selling that game and flying 100,000 miles a year while I was still in college. And then after that, I went and I worked for a guy by the name of Nolan Bushnell. And Nolan was the guy who invented Pong and started Atari and also Chuck E. Cheese. So I got to learn what it was like to work for a genius, a mad genius who had 30 ideas every day and then had 30 more the next day and then 30 more the next day. 
And then um, I went to work for our largest uh, customer at that time. And uh, I went to Chicago and opened up a coin-operated amusement distributorship. And around that time, um, this is about 10, 11 years ago, uh, the state of Illinois legalized uh, basically slot machines to go into bars and taverns and truck stops. And so um, we got into that business and that's what got me into uh, the gaming industry, gambling industry, if you will. And um, one thing led to another and I kind of got back over to Las Vegas here. And, and now I, uh, I run a small company called Galaxy Gaming. And what we do is we come up with new and interesting games for tables. So table games rather than slot machines. Um, side bets that you would see on blackjack games or we'll create all brand new games. Uh, like high card flush. And what we do is we come up with the math and the marketing for that. And then we license that IP to casinos throughout the world, as well as online casinos uh, throughout the world. And uh, we pay, they pay us a monthly fee to use our stuff and offer those games to players uh, uh, at their tables. That's what we do. Uh, it's interesting. So I, I I feel like before we ever even get started, that that Landon's going to be way more engaged than 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 normal. Let's just call it that. <laughs> because what you may or may not know is that Landon was a professional poker player while he was in college. He actually dropped out of college and played professional poker for what a year or two before going back to college and finishing up. Yeah, couple years. And where did you play? Yeah, so I was living in Southern California, so I played at a um, couple uh, casinos out there. I played at uh, Ocean's Eleven. I played at the Bike. Um, I played at uh, oh my gosh, uh, Hawaiian Gardens. Yeah, and then um, once I got really serious about playing, uh, I spent about half the month out in Vegas, and I'd stay on a friend's couch or you know, in a hotel room for a week or two, then I'd go back and out here, out in Vegas, I played all over the place. Uh, Bellagio, Venetian a lot, uh, MGM, you know, just kind of wherever the game, you know, took me. Well, you know, so you know, basically two thirds of what we do. Essentially, what I like to say is that we basically, for us to create our games, we take math, we take psychology, which are two things I'm sure you're very well aware of being a poker player. And then we mix in some marketing with it in regards to how we create our games. And if we do a good job of that and give the players an opportunity to win a little bit and an opportunity to win a lot at times, that's what kind of entices them to, to come here. So you're well on your way of understanding the kind of stuff that we do in regards to uh, you know trying to offer something to gamblers out there. Yeah. Well, Austin, uh, Austin definitely nailed it on the head. Uh, I am, am a little bit more excited today than I am maybe in, in future interviews, but for, for a couple of reasons. One, because of what uh, Austin just mentioned, but uh, the second reason, which uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about today, um, you know, we want to make sure we're, we're, you know, talking about some of the things that you, you've mentioned in your intake form and, but one of the things that is really unique is that we get this opportunity to interview interview you as the CEO of a public company. Sure. And one of the biggest issues in the market that we play in, which is the private business owner market, five to 50 million of revenue, call it, 
is that there is so little transparency, you know, um, in the in the private capital markets. And so to get this perspective from you uh, running a relatively small company that is uh, that is public, you know, I I definitely want to highlight that and focus in on that a little bit at some point in this conversation, because uh, I think it's super interesting. But it also just lets us kind of draw some comparisons that uh, we've never really been able to make on this show or just generally kind of in the, you know, the clients that we serve. So I'm, I'm really interested and fascinated to kind of get your uh, take and experience, you know, running a, a pretty small uh, public sure. company. Yeah. I mean, I, I would tell you like everything, I think there's pluses and minuses. There are times when the, when the cues are due and the audits are going on and things like that, I can tell you, I feel like there's a lot more minuses than there are pluses on there. Um, you know, and again, for a company our size, you know, we're once we kind of get back, you know, past COVID and stuff like that, just so your your listeners uh, know, we're, we're north of $20 million a year. We, you know, we have a, a pretty healthy EBITDA margin, so we're a nice little business. Um, but, you know, to be a public company, it's not cheap, right? You're, you're, you're getting audit, you're taking care of your audits, you have a lot of filings to do, uh, you have board members, there's board fees on that type of thing. But um, I think all things being equal, I think I would probably say it's been a good experience. Uh, I think it's been a good experience because I have a lot of, again, and also being a small company, uh, I have a lot of interaction with our shareholders for a couple of reasons. Uh, Again, since we're a smaller company, if someone comes in and wants to take a pretty good size of your uh, business, they don't have to put a ton of capital to work. But the other thing about us is that we're in the gaming industry and the gaming industry is highly regulated. And so on a state by state basis, uh, they'll do background checks based on if you're a key member, if you're an officer of the company, or if you're a shareholder of a certain level, it can be 5% threshold or 10% threshold. So I have a lot of these guys that I call 49ers. And those are the guys that are at the 4.9%. They like our business, but they surely don't want to go through the cost and, and the unpleasantness, if you will. If you're not used to being um, going through a gaming regulation a regulator issue, uh, it's 10 years of credit card statements. It's 10 years of bank statements. It's we want to talk to neighbors. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. And, you know, if you have an opportunity to invest in A and not have any issues or B and, boy, have, have the full uh, proctology exam, you may want to go with A. So the good news is, you know, I get to spend a lot of time with them. I think the other thing is that as we have looked at some M&A stuff and we closed on a company last year, we were able to use our current, uh, our stock as a currency at some level, which is something you can do a little bit more readily available with a public company than you can with a private company. And so I think that allowed us to go out there and purchase uh, a company we bought, PGP, um, at the rate that we wanted to buy it at and with the two different currencies, a little bit of cash and a little bit of stock to do those things. Um, And then I think that, you know, on the... uh, other side of it is that it does give us, I think, a little bit more exposure to people being a public company. You know, you're filing, you're in front of everyone every quarter with something. If you have to 
Um, you know, people know what you're doing. And, and if you're ha- if you have a good story to tell every quarter, they see your numbers on there. So if your story is good, it gains interest and people are a little bit more interested on there where that's something you don't necessarily get on the private side of things, unless you've got a really good PR machine or a great marketing team to do that. You know, on the negative side of things, like I said, it's the cost and it's probably, you know, uh, an additional person and a half in a small company like ours where we've got 40 to 45 people that are really just kind of focused in on, um, you know, making sure that all your filings are right. And we spend a little bit too much more money on that than I think we ought to it as a smaller company on those things just as a cost. But the one other thing it does do is that it forces you to have a board, right? Not every private company has to have a board. And we're really lucky. Um, this is a company we've gone through, you know, a whole bunch of fun stuff in regards to changing out a founder and going through a pandemic and things like that. And I, we definitely couldn't have done it alone. And we did it with a really, really good board. And, you know, we have board members that um, one was the head of the Nevada Gaming Control Board here and carries a lot of weight. He's on a board of another gaming company. We have another board member who, who used to be uh, CEO of a second largest gaming company uh, in the world in scientific games. So you know, we've, we've been able, for whatever reason, to attract some good talent around us. And that talent is, you know, it's really helped me personally in regards to bouncing ideas off of. And uh, they slap me upside the head when they think I'm doing something uh, not too bright. And I think it's just helped the company in general. So, you know, on balance, I think it forces you to do some things that you're not required to do as a private company. So it forces us to really think about our processes. It really, you know, going through the audit, if you change an auditor, they really look at things in a different way. And I think the force of having a board to really help you think about not just the day-to-day Stuff, but okay, what's the five-year plan and pushing you on things and asking you to think about different things. The fact that those things are required and formalized, um, like I said, I think on balance, I think is very, very helpful for us. Yeah. So I've got two, two things to say to that, I guess. First is, the, is a comment. And then the second would be a question, I suppose. You know, the first thing that, that I would say is, you know, Landon and I and what we do day to day in doing comprehensive financial planning for business owners specifically. And like I said, at the beginning of the program, it, it's typically, um, you know, privately held businesses is that the one positive I would think, and, and really the biggest negative that Landon and I deal with when we're trying to get a business ready to sell mm-hmm. uh, is that they don't have the professional stuff that you just talked about, right? They don't have a board. They don't have their financials in order. They don't have, you know, everything kind of put together to easily say, here's our information. Here's how we operate. And here's what we're worth. Do you want to buy the, do you want to buy the company or not? That's, that's a huge benefit on the, on the public side, right? Because you're forced to do that every single quarter. Yeah. And look, we're for sale every day, right? Because, uh, you know, our shares are, are publicly traded and people can tell you what they think we are worth uh, by the minute of a trading day on there. But to your point, you know, I've been in private businesses and family business as well. So I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, I think it's the rigor and I think it's the processes and, and things like that that we have in place that because it's a requirement, you do it, right? If, if things aren't a requirement, a lot of times you don't do it, right? It's, it's pretty rare where a private company would do all of these things unless they're a 
some substantial scale and probably have an eye to doing something or the private equity or whatever it is, that type of thing. But to your point, I, I think that's exactly right. We are, or we are kind of ready, set, here are the books, here are the knuckleheads that uh, are running this company, keep them if you want. Uh, otherwise, kick them out the door and do your thing. Yeah. 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 So, and then I guess the follow-up question to that, you know, you talked about the regulation, which as a public company, there's all kinds of regulations that you have to deal with. But then on top of that, you've got the regulations of being a gaming company, which really, you know, kind of makes it worse, so to speak. But the question that I would have then is what about institutional investors? How are they treated in terms of the back, you know, you talked about the background checks. If you want to own more than 5% of your company, they got to go through the background checks. But how does that transfer to an institutional investor? Like almost every uh, question about regulatory items, I, I wish there was a, a one answer, right? Um, every state has a little bit different look at things. So some states make accommodations for uh, an institutional investor. And in some situations, if you're over 5%, they, they want to start uh, digging in deeper on things. And so that has been, I would tell you, one of the issues, not just in our uh, company, but you know, in the industry in general, where it has kind of scared off some of the institutional guys. Now, when you get to companies that are much bigger than ours, Going in and taking a 5% chunk of the business is a different amount of commas than if you were to do that in our business. Um, but again, every state looks at it a little bit differently. Uh, we have some states that they want to do background investigations of anybody at 1%. Uh, some states will say, okay, our threshold is 5%, but we retain the right that if we like, if, if we want to check someone out, we're going to check them out if they own five shares or 10 shares. So there's really not a one size fits all. Um, I think where a lot of people, like I said, have been kind of coming in there and, and comfortable are these guys that are kind of in, right under that 4.9% and that type of thing. But by and large, um, not a lot of huge institutional folks. Obviously, we're a micro cap. We are getting a lot more interest from these micro cap funds. So we are seeing a hand, there's more micro cap funds out there and micro cap investors than I ever knew there were. I call them the micro cap mafia uh, affectionately <laughs> because all these guys know each other and they've introduced me to this guy and to that guy. But uh, more, I, I'm seeing more funds out there, micro cap world. And those are the guys I think that are dipping their toes in with companies like ours that I see, not as much as you know larger mutual funds, things like that. So the industry as a whole, this iGaming industry that you're that you're a part of, I yeah. think it's it's fairly clear that it's going to grow tremendously over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so I, I guess that that will be interesting to watch to see specifically how that's handled in terms of institutional investors and getting to the next level, right? To small cap, to mid cap, to you know, hopefully eventually large cap. That's that's an interesting phenomenon that you're going to have to deal with, I guess, from a, from a regulation standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I, I think iGaming is a place where uh, a lot of people have a lot of interest right now. Uh, it comes, uh, I, I would say, a little bit on the back of all of the explosion of sports betting here in the States. But iGaming has been around for a while. So iGaming has been, you know, it's a, it's a fairly mature industry in the UK and the EU. 
And we bought uh, an iGaming company uh, last year called uh, Progressive Game uh, Partners. And they had been a distributor of our content as well as other people's content, built mostly over in the UK and EU. And so iGaming uh, is right now, um, for those of you uh, who don't know, basically it's the ability to go online and in certain states that allow it, you can play table games or slot machines as you would at a physical casino, either through an RNG, which is kind of a graphical representation uh, of things, or kind of like what we have here, a live dealer who would, you know, deal pull cards and deal cards with someone with a camera in front of them. So right now you have uh, the state of uh, Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, recently Michigan and West Virginia that currently offer this. You, at the same time, you have over 20, almost 25 states, I think, right now that offer uh, legalized sports betting. And so one of the things that you'll see if you kind of look at what the, the DraftKings and the FanDuel's and the betting gyms are the world we're talking about is that they all believe that four or five years from now, um, they will be making more money from iGaming uh, than they will from sports betting. A couple of reasons for that. I think it appeals to more people. Uh, you know, in, in the sports betting world, you're trying to find that uh, 10% fig, if you will, you know, half people on one side or the other. And there are different types of uh, percentages when you're playing slot machines or you're playing table games. Something. So what we've seen uh, uh, overall is that the EU and the UK continue to grow uh, when everything has been closed over there. Obviously, the online numbers were very good. And when uh Casinos were closed here in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, their numbers grew. When I think about iGaming, um, I don't think of it as an if uh, or uh, with land-based casinos. Uh, we, we think of it as a complement to it. And one of the things that we've learned, we have a pretty substantial land-based business as well as iGaming business in the UK. And again, as I mentioned, this is a place where it's a pretty mature market over there. And they, they think of it differently. They want to make sure that regardless of how their customers want to consume content, if it's on green felt or if it's on phone or what have you, they want to make sure that same content is there and available for their customers. And so that means that they want to have 21 plus three on the phone and they want to have 21 plus three on the felt. So that's one of our blackjack side bets. And we are seeing similar things here in the state. You know, Pennsylvania, we have product in the land-based casinos there. And we offer 21 plus three and lucky ladies and bonus crafts online. They play those games. So customers are really looking for those titles that they're comfortable with. So I think what you're going to see with iGaming is uh, right now, only about 9% of the U.S. population has access to it based on states that are legalized right now. Connecticut is in the process of legalizing it. But I think over the next four to five years, it's going to be very, very similar to sports betting. Our thesis statement is to, say, is to say, well, it's okay for you to go online and bet on the Red Sox with your shirt on there, but that you can't bet on the next hand of blackjack. It's just a, a very difficult argument. And then I think you can also look at the tax base. In the first month where Michigan went live, they went live with sports betting and iGaming at the same time. Um, you had $114,000 worth of tax revenue off sports betting and over $4 million in tax revenue off iGaming. And so I think what you're going to see there, especially as, as states are looking for new and, and interesting ways to raise revenue, when if they already have sports betting, 
and they have the opportunity to tax a little bit more on the iGaming. If you have physical land casinos, if you have sports betting, uh, and you can now offer iGaming at a reasonable tax rate, I think you're probably going to do that. And I think most people feel that way as well. So back to your uh, original question, you know, that's the type of stuff that's bringing in, I think, larger investors, you know, DraftKings went public through a SPAC and obviously a lot more institutional guys doing those types of things. But you'll end up seeing four or five major operators out there offering these products. Um, and those will be pretty major companies, I think, with institutional investors. Yeah, I think it's an interesting deal. I mean, we we see it quite a bit. We see, I mean, I live in Arizona, like I said at the beginning of the show, and and uh, you know, we see we just legalized marijuana, you know, non medicinal marijuana in Arizona. We do have land based casinos here. Sports right. betting is legal, right? right? So I I don't see any reason why it doesn't. And the other part you kind of mentioned is tax revenue. Like the whole reason all of these things are being legalized in these states is tax revenue. Exactly. Yeah. It's a way to generate tax revenue without having to actually tax the population, whether it's property taxes, sales tax, income tax, it's a way to generate additional revenue. That's right. Yeah. Obviously we live here in Las Vegas and we love the fact that tourists come in here and smoke some dope and play some, and play some, craps so we don't have any state income tax right so uh again that's uh that's kind of uh you know the usage tax or the sin tax or whatever you want to call it i'm happy for those people to do that just uh, so we continue to send in zero dollar checks to the state of nevada yeah yeah i don't i don't blame you and you know smoking dope and playing craps is like every friday night at landon's house <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, uh, if uh, if a Friday night Landon's house uh, consists of that, uh, man, I, I I'd like to be invited to that party sometime because <laughs> we're, we're in bed by about nine thirty and the house is quiet at eight. So I don't know, but but uh, Todd, to to your point uh, on this uh, smoking dope and uh, <laughs> gambling kick here, I I did just see something come through on the uh, review journal saying that uh, we just gave the thumbs up for uh, cannabis lounges or something, something like that. So I'm assuming that means now that people can sit in a lounge and smoke a, smoke a yeah. blunt, maybe, you know, play in a slot machine. Well, those won't be, uh, from what I understand, I don't think those are going to be allowed in any casino properties, right? So okay. they are, they are going to kind of, that's the, the Chinese wall that they have there that those are not going to be you know within those walls it's kind of like the gentlemen's clubs aren't in casinos and i think these lounges won't be in there as well okay yes. interesting are they are they going to be able to gamble in those lounges do you know you know i don't know if you know if they were going to do something like that i think what they might end up doing would be kind of like the uh the slot routes where maybe you have the video poker games in there potentially, but I don't think they are going to be uh, full licensed casinos with slot machines and table games as I understand it right now. Interesting. So I've got a question for you and maybe you know the answer to this. Maybe you do not. I heard a statistic. This was many years ago around sports betting. And if I recall correctly, it was something like, like, less than 5% of sports bettors actually make money or, or I just, I know it was something to the extent where I was just like scratching my head going and why do people ever bet sports? So 
I don't know if you can you can speak to that, but yeah, uh, I heard something like that. I don't I don't know uh, what it is uh, on the specific uh, percentage of it. What I can tell you is that it depends on what your timeline is, right? You know, if you bet, you know, if, if my timeline was a week and I catch a heater, um, I'm pretty good. Um, but I think if you take someone over a period of time, you know, and you're betting 110 to make 10 and it's a flip of a coin over a period of time, you know, the math is the math. And I think that's, you know, one of the things, as I mentioned earlier on, is that we, we blend math and we blend marketing and we blend psychology together. But at the end of the day, this is math. And so, you know, when people, you know, if you see a slot machine, right, and it says, hey, it's a 95% payout, okay? Well, that means, okay, if I put in $100, um, at the end of that $100, I should expect to have 95. And then if I play off that 95, I should expect to have 95% of that, right? And again, obviously there's ups and downs in those types of random number generator type games or we're just pulling hands and things ebb and flow. But, you know, when you start to have of hundreds of thousands of bets over a period of time, you know, you have, you know, this type of deal going on, but once you start having a lot of it, it starts to smooth out pretty well. And you guys uh, sit there and I'm sure you guys run your Monte Carlo scenarios and things like that. And depending on if you have a short timeline or a longer timeline, when you're sitting down with your people and obviously things get a little bit smoother and, and time and, and the math and the compounding works for them. It's not different in what we do, right? Um, you guys are looking to compound this way and we look at a return to player that kind of goes a little bit this way while still offering an entertainment value, right? Are you willing to pay 5% for a chance to win more, but have a good time, right? It's, it's not any different than going to a movie for $15. And that's the healthy way to gamble, right? To say, hey, this is going to be entertainment. I'm going to have a good time with it. But just like your industry, you know, math and time is our friend. Right, right. Yeah. Earlier, uh, you talked about the the potential for some explosive growth in your in your industry. So, talk to us for for a minute, Todd. And, and how does how does Galaxy fit into this into this you know future growth in your industry? Yeah, so I, I think that the the iGaming growth is really where uh, a lot of people are focusing in on, and obviously, it's one of the reasons we made the decision to purchase the company we did last year. And uh, I think one of the reasons is because it scales just so well, right? So um, if someone goes out and they make our game in that RNG style, and that's the graphical representation, they make that game once and they can have as many people playing on that game at any time as they want. And then in the live dealer type deal, that also scales very well into games like roulette or games uh, like Baccarat where there's no in-game decision. So you can literally have 10,000 concurrent players on a game online where obviously because of physical constraints like this table here, you get around seven people around the table. So I think what people get really excited about is number one, people don't have to make a, uh, uh, a specific uh, trip. And I think the scalability is pretty amazing on this. So why we think we're in a pretty good spot for it is that you know, we do pretty well uh, in the table game space. And uh, as things open up in North America, blackjack is the number one game. Well, we own five of the top seven side bets for blackjack in the world right now. 
So as, you know, a new state opens like Connecticut, you know, our product is going to go and find its, uh, its fair share. And our players already know that because we have that product into the physical casinos in these next states already. So we have a built-in player base that knows our product already. The online operators have already developed our product. So there's no real added cost to bring our product to the next state and to the next state and to the next state. So, you know, for us, we want to make sure that we continue to build a big moat around the blackjack side of the business and that we also have an eye on how do we make these really interesting uh, games where we can have a lot of concurrent players on here. And then I think long term, and I think that's kind of like step one. Then I think the next thing that's out there is that what's interesting about the iGaming side of things is that in our opinion, it doesn't have to be a tape. What you see right now is people are starting to put out, you know, a lot more entertainment value, like a, a game show style deal where they spin a wheel and someone's got a microphone and they're having a good time and the set design is fantastic because again, going back to the fact that it's entertainment, but it doesn't have to have the physical constraints that you typically see in a physical casino. And so I think there's going to be that next level of entertainment value. And then I think thirdly, what we're seeing is, as I mentioned with the sports betting guys and the DFS guys, we're believers that at least in the States, you're going to see four or five of the major operators, the DraftKings, the FanDuel's, the BetMGM's, those kind of guys. And I, I liken them to the streaming services that you see now, Disney and Netflix and Hulu and things like that. So right now, everybody's got kind of mostly the same stuff. But eventually, in order to keep people within your little ecosystem, you're going to start to have to create specific um, and exclusive content, right? HBO, Game of Thrones, Netflix, House of Cards, that type of thing. So I think that one of the things that you're going to see is that you're going to see uh, reasons for these guys to go in there and do deals or create content studios. You're starting to see some of these guys do that now to say, we're going to make our own content. And so I can see us turning into a little bit more of a company that are like showrunners. We've got this great game. You guys want this exclusively? Talk to the other guys, that type of deal. So I think that if you go back to the sports side of their business, right? If I'm looking for a game that I want to play, I'm shopping a line, right? He can give me three points on this game, but over here I can get four. So my ability or to stay in their ecosystem is pretty weak versus can I go find that game? I really love to play, but that's the only place I can get it. That's what's going to keep me there. And so I think that that's kind of maybe what we start to think about as far as the evolution of what we're going to see for content in the iGaming space. So to, to sum it all up, you guys, your focus is blackjack. That's where you guys think that you shine today or know that you shine today. And you believe that you're going to be the number one, or that's what you're shooting for is being the number one provider of blackjack side bets throughout the world. Yeah. I mean, today we are. Um, it's not the only products that we carry on there, but we know that that's the calling card. And right now, if you're opening up something in America, you definitely want to make sure you've got blackjack covered, right? So we have products that covers the poker derivatives and the roulettes and those other types of things. But we want to make sure we plant our flag there, build the moat, and then start to build some of the other content out for these guys. So what's the, what's the long-term play, you think, for Galaxy Gaming, right? I mean, FanDuel and DraftKings have done a tremendous job from a marketing standpoint. Everybody knows those names. Even if you've never placed a sports bet, everybody knows those names, right? So 
what's the long-term marketing plan and or you know long-term growth and acquisition plan for Galaxy Game? Yeah, so I'd say you know on the marketing plan, um, people don't need to necessarily know uh, Galaxy Gaming, but they really do need to know about Twenty One Plus Three, and they do need to know about Lucky Lady. So when I think about our branding, it's one of those things that we're going to do more of down the road, right? We really want to build into these brands for our customers, and we want to get to the point where you know they ask for my name. I mean, we are on pace this year where. Um, we'll do over a billion bets on our product online, you know, with a B. So it's a lot. So we know that people like it, but we want to reinforce those brands as much as possible. So that's number one. Um, number two, there's definitely, a, you know, as you guys know, there's a lot of money in the market right now. There's a lot of consolidation uh, that's happening in and around our space on things. We've been independent uh, for 21, almost 22 years right now. And I think you always, you know, as a small business uh, owner or a small business uh, president, you always have to uh, run your business like you're going to run it forever, right? Um, you can't assume that there's going to be a purchase of your company or what have you, regardless of what's going on in, in and around you. So, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, we've gone through some stuff. And, you know, last year, uh, after we'd gone through some uh, items with the founder, uh, the pandemic hits, you know, and, you know, last March, we put out a press release saying we're suspending billing to all of our physical customers. Uh, luckily, we still had the iGaming and we've come out of that. You know, and last year we, we did the PPP loan. We did a Main Street loan program. I mean, we, we were we were hitting on all sorts of, we we're getting all those Bernie bucks anywhere we could, right? And we weathered the storm on there. And so you know, we've gone through, I would say, over the last three years, uh, some interesting times and in, in getting licensed in more places. And I really feel like we're at a place right now where we can kind of take that deep breath and we're now planning for, you know, the next five years and seven years. We're doing these types of internal plans on things. And so, as I mentioned, you know, we, we just opened up some new jurisdictions. So what are we going to do? We're going to go out there. We're going to go get our rightful place in the Californias in the world of Mississippis and Missouris and places that we couldn't really do business in before. So we still have a lot of space there. Uh, outside of the UK, the company really hasn't done much internationally. We have some opportunities in Europe and South Africa. And, uh, we need to, we know over the next five years, think about how we get into the Asian and, and South American markets. And then uh, we need to really, really focus on a uh, great product, right? What we do today, if we're still doing the same thing five years from now, uh, that's going to be a problem. So we'll be expanding uh, our product base in regards to what we offer. I think that it'll still have a lot of ties to the table side of things, but you may play our games on a tablet or you may play our games on electronic gaming terminals. You'll definitely be playing them with your iPad or on your phone while the honey bunny is uh, watching a rom-com on Netflix and you're playing our games that way and in gaming a little bit. So, you know, we're, we're thinking of basically at the end of the day, we want our content to get out there regardless of how people want to consume them or where they want to consume them. Uh, and now we just have more opportunities for us to get out there to do it. So, um, as I said before, look, we're, we're a publicly traded company, so we're for sale every day uh, on a share by share basis. But we have to think about and plan and run the company as we'll stay independent for the next 22 years. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair way to look at it, right? I mean, because you do have to balance that, right? And we've we've said I don't know how many 
probably hundreds of times on this on this program. You know, Stephen Covey's famous line, begin with the end in mind. And you have to do that from a planning standpoint, but at the same time, you're a public company. You can't plan on somebody coming in and, you know, Berkshire Hathaway coming in and buying the whole company and delisting you guys and taking you private. I mean, you can't count on that. You have to work in what you've got today and and build a plan. You know? Yep. And that's what we're doing. And like I said, you know, we've got after getting through the last year and, uh, you know, the team did a wonderful job of staying focused and working through and creating product during the downtime and doing all that type of stuff that, you know, we, we took a little bit of advantage, but, you know, we're, we're at a point now as I, as I, we had kind of around here, we had this uh, mantra over the last year of survived and thrive. And, you know, we, we do something around here called the state of the galaxy and we do it every day that we release earnings. And we basically sit down in the team and saying, here's what we did last quarter and here's what we're going to do next quarter. And, um, you know, as I sat him down uh, at the last state of the galaxy, I said, I am letting everybody know we have survived. Right. And so now it's the thrive part. And that's kind of the fun stuff. Right. Um, even though I would tell everyone that the last year was probably I would say I, I got more as a manager out of the last year than I have at any other time in my career. Um, you know, tough times, you know, you have to do tough things and you ask a lot of people and our people responded really well. So in a very weird way, I kind of enjoyed last year as I look back on it now in regards to doing the difficult things with our team here. But now it's time to do the fun stuff, right? You know, we're getting back to the numbers that we did before with a better cost structure and we have more opportunities with new states opening up and the iGaming is kind of a fun thing to do. So um, as much as I learned from the last year, I think I'm going to enjoy the next couple of years, hopefully a little bit more. Gives you gives you a lot of confidence moving forward, right? When you when you go through a year like you did last year, to know that you were able to to make it through relatively unscathed now with a, a better structure moving forward, I, I would assume that gives you and your team a lot of confidence looking into the future. It does. Yeah. I mean, you know, the old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that's one of those things. And um we, re- we really, the, the core of the people that uh, have been here for a while and were with us over the last year, I mean, they're, they're just reinvigorated and, you know, they're very, very focused. You know, they lived through that. Um, you know, everyone took a little bit of haircut, obviously, around bonus time and things like that. And not one person ever complained about it. They got it. They understood it. And, um, and now we're kind of set for go. So um, I'm very, very lucky to be surrounded by a team like that that, you know, said, okay, whatever we got to do. And, uh, and now I think they'll be rewarded for it as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I wanted just to get some clarification on something from you. I should have asked this earlier when we were, when, when you had mentioned it and we're talking about it a bit, but um, I didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, you keep referring to the, uh, the 21 plus three. And then I think that the plus three is the side bet part of it, I believe. So for, for some people, they probably don't really know what that is or what that means. So can you just talk about what 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 are the side bets of blackjack and and yeah. speak to that for a moment, if you would? Yeah. So you know, blackjack, uh, the name of the, the side bet is called 21 plus three. And so basically what side bets are is there are games that are already in the public domain. 
games like craps, games like blackjack and things like that. So what we do, we either will make a whole new game from scratch, like a game like High Card Flush and it's 100% proprietary. We make it from the ground up and you go up there and, and uh, that's the game. Or we'll offer side bets and progressive meters that'll go up here on the side and kind of like a tote board will, will go up for each incremental bet. But basically a side bet is an opportunity to say, let's say if I put $20 down on a blackjack hand and I can put $5 down on the side bet. So it's an additional bet there. There's a different, uh, a different game. So in some situations it could be matched up cards or it could be three sevens or it could be a six, seven, eight in regards to what's dealt with me. And based on whatever it says here on the pay table, that would be what I would get paid out on the side bet. And that has nothing to do with the base game of blackjack. And so why do people like side bets? So players like side bets because by and large, they're looking for a little bit more volatility into their gaming. And they're also looking for something to say, okay, I can put $5 down and potentially win 50 to one or uh, 25 to one on They like those odds versus something on blackjack, which is, as you know, is basically a, a one to one or, you know, a three to two or six to five, depending on where you are in the strip for a payout for blackjack. And so, uh, and then why do operators, why do gaming operators like it? Because there is a better house edge on the side bets. Very little house edge in regards to straight blackjack for them. So what they're looking for is, okay, players like to play something. They get a little up and down on things. They get a nice little win. But over a period of time, again, going back to what we talked about, time and money, over a period of time, those side bets are going to actually have a better house edge for them than the, than the base game of, of blackjack itself. So that's what a side bet does. Hmm. And we actually offer that for even a game like craps. And you would think that um, there are enough places to bet on a craps table. I guess not. We have a game called bonus craps that is very, very popular. It's the number one craps game in the world. And people bet that as well. So it's just one of those things. And you see this in uh, slot machines all over where people are looking for a little bit more volatility. And I talk about it as being kind of that elastic bet, right? If I can put $1 down and potentially win 100 that's interesting to people versus I put $5 down on a base game and maybe I'll win $5, not as interesting. And so that's one, again, getting back to kind of the psychology that we talked about and the marketing around it is how can we create interesting side bets where still there's like a bigger win. And when we get back to the psychology, a lot of the stuff of what we do is that you, know, you have a pay table of pay out one to one and three to one, and then big times are up to a hundred to one. A lot of times what we'll do is we take some of the meat out of the middle and we'll push some of it down to the bottom, right? Because there, it's important to make sure that you're pushing back one or two chips uh, to the player on a pretty regular basis, right? So again, that kind of, kind of comes back to the psychology uh, of what we do with as we create these games. Interesting. Well, I, I would assume that piques the interest when, uh, you know, it, it's more favorable for the house to uh, take on something like that. That's probably something they are interested in, huh? It is. It is. And especially, like I said, on a game where they have such a slight house edge, they're looking for anything they can to raise that up a little bit. Well, hey, Austin, I, I know you've got, a, uh, you've got a, a question or comment here, so I want you to jump in. But I want to just say something out loud here so I don't forget. After we kind of wrap up here in the next few minutes around talking about Galaxy, I want to 
I want you to just talk for a couple minutes, uh, Todd, about what it's been like for you transitioning from, you know, a lifelong entrepreneur to being a, a, a CEO of a, you know, of a corporation, albeit, you know, small and I, I think relatively nimble. But uh, yeah, I want to I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, but let me pass it back to Austin because I think he's got a, a follow up question in regards to what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that's a great conversation to have, and I I want to have that conversation. I just thought it was a good opportunity to have you reiterate the way that Galaxy Gaming makes its money in that situation, right? Because obviously the house makes more with the side bets, like you said. That's interesting to them. I believe at the beginning you said that it's it's basically a subscription service that that uh, those casinos are paying you. But what about the purely online games? So I guess maybe just delineate the two real quick, and then we'll get to Landon's question. Yeah. So essentially, uh, most of our terrestrial business is on a uh, a monthly fee, if you will. Uh, by and large, most of it is that way. So we would have a fee for the felt, and in many situations, if we have the hardware, we're running the progressive and things like that, there would be a fee for that. The online business kind of grew up differently, right, with a different model. And that model was basically that we participate in a percentage of the net win on our games, which that means is that for we have all the money that's bet just on our side bet, so not on the base game in that particular, just our side bet. And so all the bets, all the payouts, and then we take a percentage of that net win, if you will. So uh, obviously, you know, that's important to us. So as, as our customers grow with our product, we grow with them. And so what's interesting about that is that, you know, again, uh, depending on, you know, the situation, you may have some guys that had a really good month, but they had a lower hold uh, or just because of the luck of the drop. Or you may have uh, a great month because the hold was a little bit higher. But again, over time, it all evens out. So we have a little bit more volatility in regards to that portion of our business in regards to what goes up or down and things like that. But I think over time, it smooths out. And then once you start to really have uh, the amount of bets that I mentioned earlier, um, that really starts to smooth things out. And you have a pretty good understanding of math. What, what's different is, you know, different places have different bet values. Uh, they have different pay tables. So um, we work with them to try and help find the right thing for them and, and their players on there. But again, uh, that part of our business is a uh, percentage of the net win. So if, uh, you know, the statistics come out and iGaming's up, that's usually a pretty good month for us. Yeah. So Landon, I don't know if you want to answer it, ask it again, or if... Uh... If uh, Todd's really just that good and remembers exactly what you wanted him to do. I do remember it. <laughs> right. I was say, I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> I have, uh, I would tell you, I'm a, uh, I guess I'm a recovering entrepreneur, if you will. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about uh, as we started this was that, you know, we're still a relatively uh, small company. And um, because of that, you know, you get to do a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I get to do something like this today. I have an, an interview with a potential you know, new candidate who's coming on board. Yesterday, I had some bankers uh, in the office. And tomorrow, I've got some iGaming developers that are going to be here. So, you know, I, I, I'm not one for titles. I actually 
could care less of what my title is or what have you. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, it's kind of in your blood. I would tell you if there's one thing that's been most difficult is that, as I mentioned, for me now, after kind of the year that we had last year, we have a situation like last year and all your customers go dark. You're involved in everything, right? You need to make sure that um, you got a plan. You got to make sure that you got cash in the bank. If there's a PPP loan, you want to make sure that you got it. You're having constant conversations with folks. And and I would tell you that, um, you know, one of the things that we did during the pandemic, you know, we, we were early. We, we sent everybody home probably a week or so ahead of time. And everyone said, you know, we thought we were crazy. But during that time that we were all apart, um, I sent an email out to the team every single day. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're working on. Here's what we've got to go. You know, in those early days, no one really knew what this thing was going to be. And, you know, we had, you know, people that were very concerned and we had people all over the map on stuff. And we felt that it was important to make sure that we um, kept everyone focused on something else. Right. Let's work on this project. Let's get this done and keep their minds away from just worrying about the end of the world and doing that type of stuff. And so it was literally every day those emails go out before then. And since then, I always send an email out to the team on. Here's the three things that we're working on this week, what have you. But I would tell you if there's, um, it's hard for me to pull away as an entrepreneur. You know, I'm interested. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about things. I'm curious about people. I'm curious about new products. And so um, for me, if, if there's a problem, it's kind of letting go of that stuff. Um, I'm at a point right now, as I mentioned, where we're really spending the time thinking about what the next five years are. And so for me, uh, I have to think about working on the business rather than working in the business. You know, last year when it's all hands on deck, I was nothing but in the business, right? I wanted to make sure we got next month. Yeah, we're good for next month. Get through that month. We're good for that. Yeah, we're good for that month. And now, like I said, it's the deep breath and it's working on the business. And so the biggest thing I would say is um, putting great people into place, which we have here, um, adding great people. You know, like I said, I got to talk to some folks. In the next couple of days of how do we continue to, I think, bulletproof this place. You know, I want to make sure that if I get hit by a bus on my way to Chipotle, that, uh, you know, this place doesn't burn down to the ground. And so it's really the transition to working on the business rather than working in the business. And, uh, and then, you know, trusting people uh, on that type of thing. And so for me, I would say that's the biggest transition. Uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, if you were, you know, a janitor after second grade, like I was in the summer and then doing all this other stuff and then starting a home enhancement company in junior high, like if it's in your blood, it's in your blood. And for me, I actually, I was just having lunch with someone and we were walking back from lunch. And I said, I don't know if I do really well in a big old company, right? So a company like this size allows me to really exercise uh, the, that entrepreneurial uh, skill set, whatever that skill may be. That's the transition is making sure that you're working on the business and you got really, really good people to go and execute it. Interesting. I love it. I love it. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, Todd, we, uh, we are essentially out of time. We're just a couple minutes out from the top of the hour. It's interesting to me, the whole conversation that you just had where you explained, you know, the difference and, and what you have to do now. And, and the funny thing is, you're doing that because of the position that you're in and it's somebody else's company. And, you know, you're, you're the one who has the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. But the reality is we're constantly trying to work with entrepreneurs and business owners of privately held businesses to do exactly what you just described. Yeah. 
And it's a hard thing for entrepreneurs to do, right? I mean, you described the, I'm going to forget who it was that you worked for that had the 30 different ideas every day. That's a classic entrepreneur, right? But not an executive. Right. And, and you've got to figure that balance, whether it's a public company or a private company. That's absolutely right. And, and it's, there are different skill sets, right? And I'm sure that I trip up at times in doing that just because, you know, it's easy for me to pick up the phone and call the guy that I've known for 15, 20 years and say, are you out of your mind or do something like this versus, you know, kind of pushing out saying, you guys need to go solve this internally and have them kind of get their reps in place and do that type of stuff. So, you know, it's as much uh, development of your team as I think as anything, but to the point, like you're saying, is that I think it's getting those right people in the door and trusting your team on there. And, um, you know, we, we've gotten to a place right now where we've got a really, really nice core of people. And, you know, as you guys, you know, talk with your clients and I just, you know, everyone talks about, oh, it's people, it's this and that. It's always the people, right? It's always the people. There's going to always be, I think, ideas that come and go. But, um, you know, I've had some, I have someone that's working here now and she was with me for five years at the last place. And, you know, we're at a point right now where I can look across the room and she knows exactly what I'm thinking. I know exactly what she's thinking and she executes, right? And so, you know, it's, it, when you, I always think of it this way, what areas of the business do I not really worry about? Cause I know I got someone there. It's got it covered. Right. And I can kind of go down the list of like, okay, I got that covered. That's covered right there. Oh, we need to put a little bit of time. You know, it's like the, the Chinese acrobat spinning the plates, right? Which, which plate is wobbling right now that needs your attention right there. And there's certain places where the, where the plates are spinning pretty well most of the time. And so from that, that's kind of, you know, you know, visually how I think about it. And as you can get just more of those plates spinning without you having to touch it, then you can just go and take more naps. And that's really what I'm looking for. <laughs> so it's just taking really, you know, going, going over to his house, shooting craps and doing whatever he does on a Friday night. That's really what I'm aiming for. That's really, you know, so. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because that truly is the only way to scale a business is you have to be comfortable delegating. You have to have the right people in the right seats and feel comfortable that they will do what you need them to do. If you yeah. can't do that, you'll never truly scale. Yeah. And, and I, would t- I would say the one other thing about that is also you, I think you have to have the courage to put in better people than yourself, Right. I still have, you know, regular one-on-ones with all my folks at least every other week. And there's definitely people doing jobs a whole lot better than I did in that position. And you know, we're very lucky here. We have a CFO by the name of Perry Haggerty. You know, Harry was the CEO of Caesars or CFO of Caesars rather, you know, and Harry's a whole lot smarter than I am. And we just, you know, we make a really good team on there. And so I think that you know, if you're running a little public company or a big public company or a small one, it's not only just putting people in there, but, you know, if you can find people better than you, absolutely do it and don't be afraid, right? You know, and uh, I think that just comes back to you in space. Because there's most of the people here are much smarter than I am. I can tell you that for a fact. At least, and they work a lot harder than I do. I'm putting in a full 15, 20 hours a week. They're putting in at least 25, I think, so... <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Landon and I are partners because he's because I was comfortable enough partnering with somebody that was better looking than me. There you go. What do you want? You want to be better looking or you want to be smarter? It's up to you. You can have hey, one. You can draw your own conclusions there. You can have one. <laughs> well, 
Todd, I'm going to go on the record. Um, looking at your stock right now on the uh, Apple, you know, app, looks like you guys have a market cap, 76.38 million. That's what it's telling me as of today, which is uh, June 8th, 2021. So it sounds like you've got a, uh, uh, an elaborate concrete uh, plan ahead of you for Galaxy. So we'd love to, you know, reconnect with you in six to 12 months and have you back on and get an update uh, on your uh, undoubted uh, success that you've got coming up. So on behalf of both of us, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all this with us. Really, really interesting conversation. And if anybody wants to look you up and pick your brain on something or have a conversation with you, uh, how do they track you down? Yeah, I mean, I think we have contact information on galaxygaming.com. And I um, mean, we're uh, we're pretty responsive, uh, so just reach out to us there, and we're happy to talk to all comers. All right, very cool, Todd. Well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, we look forward to connecting with you again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.